Let us pray. God, you have made us and you know us. We ask today that as we are gathered to give you praise, to acknowledge your goodness, to acknowledge your mercy and your compassion and your justice, you would help us to remember we too have been strangers, and yet none of us is foreign to you. Anoint us anew with your Holy Spirit that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see and mouths to make known your ways and the humility to keep learning from Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. At our summer retreat this year, which felt a little more like autumn, as you might recall, we paused to think about times when we had received hospitality. Especially, I, I was asking, have you ever experienced hospitality or been hosted in some way by even someone from this congregation? And I think many of us have had this experience when we really were in need in some way and we felt so grateful to receive kindness or generosity, even if it was something small or just a brief gesture. Or times when we have shared or used our gifts and skills to ease each other's pain in a time of need or sorrow. I don't know, do you remember what example you thought of, or are you thinking of any, anything uh, now as you think about kindness that you've received, especially here in this congregation. And I would love to hear, some of you shared a little bit at the retreat, but I'd love to hear more if you want to tell me stories later. Well, we are all recipients of the radical hospitality of God, the one to whom belong all the livestock and land and creatures of the earth, and all the intelligence and the creativity, all the things that we use to make or improve things, all the raw materials we fight over, all of these come to us from the one who generously and daringly trusts us with keeping these things and interacting with them in according to the law of love. And our committed love relationship with the Creator draws us ever deeper into a unity with each other as human beings and with all of creation. A unity that has always been there, but that we often fail to recognize. We see ourselves as separate. We see ourselves as separate from the earth. We see ourselves as separate from each other, but that's not the deepest truth. This committed love relationship or covenant, I know children, anybody who's around, if you remember us talking forever over and over about this word covenant during Lent, a lot, about how God loves all the whole earth, everything in it, and all people. Our response, right, to that huge generosity of God is, and God's trust, God's willingness to entrust us with this, 
is to share the resources that God shares with us and care for people who have reduced access to essentials of life and even reduced access to love. And this begins all the way in the law of Moses. And then the prophets look back to the law of Moses to critique when people have violated the law's demands for just and generous um, relationships in society. And when this critique happens, it seems very clear that God is in the corner of people who have been given labels that are dehumanizing like welfare mom or illegal. Over and over in the Torah and the prophets, God is described as upholding the cause of strangers, foreigners, resident aliens. That's just translated various ways. And indeed, to the creator of all, there are no strangers. No one is foreign to God. Just as the borders we create and violently defend are invisible to God. It's interesting when you start looking for mentions of foreigners, I'm sure some of you have noted this, when you look for how often foreigners are mentioned about living in among the Israelites, you notice that it's pretty frequent. In fact, commands to love strangers and do right by them are repeated 36 times in the Torah, more than loving God or keeping Sabbath. And God's deliverance of the people from their bondage in Egypt is often mentioned. You notice that's so often mentioned alongside these laws. And you begin to get this sense of the divine impulse to keep the people, not just keep them charitable toward the stranger, but identifying with the stranger. It's as if God wants echoing in their ears, never become the oppressor from whom I delivered you. And remember, this was you. You were the stranger. And so don't just respect the stranger or be nice to them, but love them as you love yourself. So there's this equalizing movement present even in the law. Because our creator understands that we have this tendency to think of ourselves either as above some people or inferior to people. And is continually calling us to see ourselves in the same boat as our creator sees us. All of us in need in some way. And all with a God-given ability to give and receive love. Now, we know these things without neglecting that there are realities of poverty and affliction and injustice and oppression that put some people in need of very tangible restoration and justice and at the same time, all people equally worthy of life-sustaining resources and equally worthy of love. But that's so easy to say, right? So fast-forwarding to the first century with this young upstart rabbi Jesus, and certainly he's carrying all of these things in him, right? He knows these divine instructions about how to treat strangers, divine compassion for strangers. So what happens with this woman? Like, what is the disconnect here? Does, I mean, are you uncomfortable hearing this story? I hope so. 
Because it's, okay, Jesus, what happened here? And don't worry, I'm not going to wrap it up neatly because, I, well, I dare you to try. But it's shocking initially, right, that Jesus doesn't even follow the principle of, of caring for the foreigner even out of obligation to the law. Like, at least based on this principle of, you know, gathering what's left behind in the field. I mean, that's kind of a low bar. But no, he's not even giving out crumbs to begin with. And yet, his response, his first response, would have been typical and expected in his time to simply dismiss this Gentile woman as less than human. Dog was a common slur for non-Jews at the time. So what what happened? Did Jesus suddenly become callous toward people in distress, like whether they're Gentile or not? I don't know. That's a little hard to swallow. Especially, I mean, he's just finished talking about how impurity does not come from things on the outside, but come from within. Okay, well, let's say Jesus was... I'll just give you a couple of possibilities. I'm not satisfied with either of them, but we'll just see where we go here. So this woman does come into the house, which just adds to the layers of scandalous behavior. Because at that time, a woman and a non-Jew just approaching a Jewish male in public would be eyebrow-raising enough. But then to come into the house where he's staying is this... I mean, unheard of. So, may, I mean, it's possible Jesus is caught off guard and he's surprised and he just reacts and uses the language of his time, maybe. And maybe, in that case, the incredible takeaway is that Jesus does this turnaround and acknowledges the woman has a good point. Because that would have been also shocking to anyone listening Because in in doing so, when he acknowledges what she says, he's honoring her as an equal. And actually, more than he honors any other person who is verbally sparring with him in the Gospel of Mark, usually he just wins. But in this case, he says, you know, you're right. Go and your daughter is healed. So that's actually huge for people who are looking on. Okay. Or... Maybe another possibility, another scholar suggests, maybe Jesus' words are actually more for the people who are in the room and who are listening, and particularly his disciples, and especially those who he's trying to train in this new way of being, in this God's kingdom that is coming among them. And I'm a little more intrigued to just wonder Jesus is famous for really seeing people, you know, for looking beyond the surface. And perhaps he saw the determination in this woman's eyes. Maybe he had some intuitive sense that she was not going to give up easily. And maybe he somehow trusted that he could, he could maybe test her a little bit. I don't love that either. But maybe he just could tell she was not going to be put off easily. It seems like there has to be more going on here. Like, what is it that happened 
between them, what nonverbal communication was happening that's not recorded for us? I would love to know. So maybe Jesus takes a chance on her to show his disciples the outcome of a theology which dismisses non-Jews and women and lets these disciples experience the tension of this encounter and that feeling of unease when right in front of you, compassion is clearly called for and it's denied. This woman is begging at his feet and she has bowed in honor of him. Maybe Jesus is saying to his disciples, is this, is this what you want? Do you really think God's desire is to reject this woman and treat her as subhuman along with her child who is in desperate need? So maybe in seeing this scandalous exchange and this tense conversation, the disciples had one more chance To imagine, what if this were their mother or their sister? Maybe that work of identifying with had just a tiny bit of room to grow in them as Jesus granted her request for healing. We have certainly had more lessons than we ever needed of what it looks like when compassion is called for and withheld not least in the images from the deserts of our southwest where mothers and fathers and children escaping intolerable conditions are arrested and caged. And as border officials are now instructed to reject anyone claiming they are escaping gang or domestic violence in their home country. Remember, you were foreigners once. Do not deny them justice. Shortly after these words in Mark between the Syrophoenician woman and Jesus about crumbs being doled out grudgingly, I think it's no coincidence that in the next chapter, Jesus feeds a huge crowd of 4,000 Gentiles, giving bread so abundantly that they have leftovers. Here, Jesus is modeling God's banquet thrown open for everyone without hesitation or reservation. And while the man he restored at the end of chapter 7 now hears and speaks plainly, the disciples are still walking around deaf and none able to see what God is doing. Deaf to the new realm of God breaking in. So there are more awkward and painful exchanges toward transformation yet to come. What about us? What kinds of uncomfortable changes have to happen in us and in our ways of living to make space for the kingdom that is coming? What injustice can we no longer live with? How can we continue the movement from giving people what is left over, even though that's good and they were life-sustaining leftovers, moving to a shared table so bountiful that they have leftovers. What if we followed these biblical commands clearly calling for some redistribution of wealth on the basis of need? By the Torah's standards, hungry people had the legal right to come and eat in your field. What would that look like now? 
What might happen if we dared to just ask our Mexican and Guatemalan and Salvadoran and Nicaraguan siblings in Christ to start with? What they would welcome from us? Are there some kind of community-to-community exchanges or ways of supporting one another and sharing resources that are already happening or that we could be part of that would circumvent the established economic domination of our country and perhaps increase well-being for both communities? For those who have migrated here, what does love require? For us, what does love require Not simply the minimum of love which does no harm to a neighbor, but abundant love which says, this could be me. This could be my family and my children. Whenever I stand as judge over people who are clearly in need without knowing very much of their story, I'm still just doling out crumbs. Whenever we believe we have the right to make choices for people, or that we know better how to address their problems than they do, we are not yet seated with them at the table of God. Father Greg Boyle is uh, happily often quoted in this congregation, and I think Greg just most recently quoted this this particular um, piece from Greg Boyle to me, that Jesus was not a man for others, but he was one with them. This is where Jesus already is, reaching out his hand for us to come along. And it may be that when we find ourselves standing without solutions next to someone who is suffering, whose suffering perhaps we were part of causing, we find ourselves standing next to Christ. In your day-to-day, how can you tell when you are truly viewing yourself as equal in the eyes of God, equal with immigrants, strangers, who are actually, as Boyle would say, kin. Kinfolk who are known very, very very well to the one who gave birth to all of us. So what kind of border crossing might you and I be called to for the sake of love? What even small standing with might you step into honoring the image of God carried in every human being? Can we even imagine what our country would look like if people who were just arriving in this land were treated as equals with citizens, as the scripture says, equal with the native-born? What if we started imagining, even in small ways, what that would look like? Brothers and sisters, we have been hosted and feasted by Christ who shares our tears and has tasted our weakness. May we live ever more fully a life as guests of God, as family with foreigners and strangers, sharing the bounty with some leftover.